Riley, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I review the 20-year belated sequel to Independence Day, Independence Day Resurgence, the Blake Lively starring Shark Attack movie, The Shallows, and the Matthew McConaughey starring biopic, Free State of Jones. Let's get started. I'm not going to lie, I never watched Independence Day when it first came out. 96, I would have been eight years old. And at that time, I was more into dinosaurs and stuff like Godzilla. So I would have been more excited for their remake of Godzilla that turned out to be terrible. At any rate, I did watch it in full uh, leading up to this new one coming out. And I will say that, you know, I've heard the welcome to Earth. And I will, <laughs> for the record, that is Earth with a TH. You can distinctly hear it, at least on Amazon where I rented it from. I distinctly heard welcome to Earth. So quit doing the racist Earth nonsense. Never tell the Internet what to do. Anyway. I watched that original in full because I had seen the Welcome to Earth. I had seen the yeah, If We Give the Alien a Cold. You know, that I've heard all the references to it. But seeing it in full, I will say it is probably the best Roland Demerick has ever done. Because everything since then has been garbage for me. Godzilla, Day After Tomorrow. Oh, God, what else was him? Uh... I hadn't seen that anonymous, but I heard nothing but terrible things about its historical inaccuracy and all kinds of pseudo-history that it espouses about Shakespeare. And I hated, hated White House Down. I thought that was unwatchable. And people preferred that to uh, uh, Olympus's Fall and the one with uh, Gerard Butler and Aaron Eckhart that did the same thing. But... I I was okay with Olympus Has Fallen. London Has Fallen is complete, you know, jingoistic garbage. But that first one was decent because it had Anton Fuqua directing and it was, you know, a decent cast and it's it's um, Die Hard in the White House with a decent cast. So, you know, it's all right. But White House Town was unwatchable for me. And, yeah, looking back on it, I haven't seen Stargate, so I don't know how they did for their first movie. Uh, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, but Independence Day is probably their best. It's mo it's the most tolerable because I mean Independence Day is fun, and the, what makes it fun is Jeff Goldblum, Bill, Bill, po Bill Paxton. Not there's a difference between Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton, and people confuse them all the time. But Bill Paxton as the president. In fact, I better check that now. Damn it, it was Pullman. All right. So, yeah. The one, the guys that make it really good, you know, that makes it rise above what it normally, what a lot of Roland Emmerich's other movies do, is Bill Pullman as the president, Jeff Goldblum, and Will Smith. And without that, like, the one thing that they didn't get to come back for this one was Will Smith. Either because he was 
busy with his family or he was doing another film at the time. Uh, I'm guessing maybe filming Suicide Squad. And he's probably better off for filming. He's, you know, he's not making the same mistake of returning for Independence Day resurgence that he did with turning down the Matrix in 99 to do Wild Wild West. So I think he's going to be better off for picking Suicide Squad. Not to give too much away about the review. Anyway. This time around, it's been 20 years since the events in ID4. And... Bill Pullman's gone completely crazy, as has that one, as was, you know, the one scientist who had the alien wrap a tentacle around his neck and speak through him psychically. He's been in a coma, apparently, for the entirety of the 20 years and wakes up out of it. And I'm going to, and well, this time around, okay, so this time around, no spoilers. I won't go into spoilers for this portion This time around, 20 years have passed since the events of the first one. And the only guys to really return are Bill Pullman and Jeff Goldblum. Will Smith has been, you know. So in that time, Bill Pullman's kind of gone crazy because of his because he was psychically attacked by the aliens. And Jeff Goldblum has become a director of alien studies, I guess, or something. And... During this time, the technology has advanced astronomically. You know, you're getting all kinds of cool planes and rockets and, you know, they're using laser weaponry now. And basically, you know, they've been preparing, they thought they've been preparing for the next attack. And then the next attack comes and it's a, a ship that's about the size and diameter of the planet. And it just lands across the entirety of the Atlantic Ocean when it lands. And it's about them doing the same thing this time around, only with Liam Hemsworth, you know, the lesser Thor, you know, the lesser brother of the Hemsworths. Although that third one is is supposedly an actor and I haven't seen him in anything. Uh... Some kid named Jesse Usher, who I'd never heard of. When the game stands tall, which I think is a Christian football movie. Yeah, I think it's a Christian yeah, with Jim Caviezel, Jesus himself. And then something called America Teenage, where he played American Boy. Okay, anyway. Oh, God, the kid was in an inappropriate comedy. Oof. At least now he's got something else to make people forget about that. But yeah, uh, huh. Apparently that's Judd Hirsch. No, Judd Hirsch is. Yeah, see, I didn't know these things. Like, Judd Hirsch is apparently is, um, Jeff Goldblum's father. And then Brent Spiner is the doctor from Area 51 from the last movie. He comes back. He's, he, he, Goldblum and Pullman are kind of him and them, them and Judd Hirsch. Anybody who comes back from the first movie is immediately better than anybody else in this movie. Like, I hadn't heard of any of the... Like, the only person I heard of that's new are Liam Hemsworth, who is the new kind of not Will Smith because he has nowhere near the charisma that Will Smith has. And this Jesse Usher kid who plays Will Smith, who's supposedly the grown-up kid version of the... Uh, a grown-up version of the kid from the last movie, 
and Sella Ward, who is playing the Hillary Clinton stand-in, who was the first woman president. And I've heard of Sella Ward before. Couldn't, you know, couldn't tell you anything she's been in. But apparently she was in Gone Girl, The Fugitive, Day After... Oh, God, she she's, she knows Ro, Roland, Roland, however Lindsay Ellis pronounces it. She knows Emmerich from The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, poor thing. But yeah, like, Mike Whitman doesn't come back. The kid from the last movie doesn't come back. And the only ones to really come back are Judd Hirsch, Brent Spiner, Bill Pullman, and Jeff Goldblum. And they're the better things about this movie. Anyway, before I go into spoilers, I want to say that this movie is not as good as that original one. The original one stood out with the with the practical effects they used, like the miniatures when they blew stuff up, and the alien practical effects that they used, and the idea, like, it was like the first one to where like the aliens would blow up monuments. And it was like iconic for alien attack movies. And this time around, it borrows a lot more than it generates from its own ideas. Like it borrows from aliens, especially Star Wars for the fight scenes, and Star Trek for the idea of a unified Earth exploring space. So it's a lot of borrowed ideas that try to work with the original storyline of humans at a disadvantage attacking the aliens, only it doesn't work as well. And I feel like that first one was a lot more fun and energetic and dynamic, and this one is just kind of like almost obligatory, like... We gotta do a sequel now, and it it doesn't fit. Like, I feel like if you could get Will Smith back and make it more about those original characters and then add some new side characters, like the new president, like, see what's been going on. Like, the stuff they do with the president's daughter and how she's in what I'm guessing was an attempted love triangle that they later decided, let's not do that. And, uh, yeah, all that stuff, it... (laughs) It's not, you know, it's none of it. None of the new characters are memorable. Like Will Smith was, like Jeff Goldblum was, like Judd Hirsch was, like Bill Pullman was. All those characters from that original movie were so iconic. And here, none of the new characters, all the new characters are completely forgettable and bland. They're pretty people who don't really do anything but go through the motions. And Liam Hemsworth, God help him, is trying to be charismatic, but... I feel like if they got Chris, he might have been able to add more energy to it. But at the same time, I don't know. Maybe it's Emmerich's directing. I don't know what why these characters are just so bleh. Writing, acting, direction. Whatever happened, it's not working. And it, there's not that same energy that was in that first movie. And I think people saw that because from what I could tell, it's not doing very well. Like, I think... I think... It, Looking Well, if I look at the box office, because I'm recording this on Monday night, the uh, 27th, and looking at the stuff for the weekend, Finding Dory <laughs> oh, topped Independence Day Resurgence, which was then followed by Central Intelligence. So that tells you where what people saw for the over the weekend. More people wanted to keep seeing Finding Dory than wanted to see this and come back and see Central Intelligence than to see the Independence Day sequel. So yeah, that about does it for the non-spoiler talk. 
I want to get into some of the stuff that bugged me about the movie because, yeah, it, it has issues. And so for the spoiler talk, I just want to say, why? Well, number one, the thing that kind of stuck in my craw, but not anybody else's, was why couldn't Mae Whitman come back? Other than we need somebody hotter, Mae Whitman could have easily come back. The stuff they do with her is they make her a pilot like her dad. Mae Whitman could have... My, my Whitman could have played a, the the character again. Like I love May Whitman. For those who don't know, May Whitman, who played the president's daughter in the last movie, is probably best known now as either Annie, um, Michael Junior's uh, Michael Sarah's character, his Michael Sarah, Michael Bloom Junior, Michael Bluth Junior's girlfriend you know annie who that you know that running gag and the, the gag is that nobody ever remembers her like she doesn't even show up for a yearbook photo and the other one is the voice of katara from avatar the last airbender then the the animated one not the really crappy live action version that m night Shyamalan did but yeah Mae whitman is very beloved in especially like the geek community for Avatar The Last Airbender, and for Arrested Development. So, why not bring her back? She's a working actress. She's in all kinds of stuff. She was just in The Duff, which is probably her most mainstream movie, and it wasn't, like, a big hit, but enough people saw it on DVD, from what I could tell. Like, people were talking about, oh, I just saw The Duff, and you were great in it on Twitter. And, like, why couldn't Mae Whitman come back? Why'd you have to get this nobody, probably model-turned-actress? Look in this garbage up again. Micah Monroe. Professional kite boarder. Appeared in the drama Labor Day. And it follows. Huh. She's recognized as the scream queen from, uh, was she like the starred as Jay in It Follows. So. At least it's not just, oh, you know, like what, how they replaced Megan Fox, who I think herself started as a model with some British Victoria's Secret model. So, so at least this woman has acted. But I saw no reason to replace Mae Whitten. Like, I, I feel like what they did with the president's daughters, with, with like the legacy characters, the Will Smith son was trying to replace Will Smith, but he's nowhere near as charismatic or as interesting as Will Smith was. And... The president's daughter is nowhere near as interesting. Like, all she does is kind of coddle Bill Pullman, who's gone crazy from the alien interaction. And, yeah, all of, like, those new actors, I feel like you could have come back with the original actors and it would have been better, if not just as good. Like, I don't get why the recasting in that sense but, like, you bring back Vivica A. Fox for, like, a cup of coffee and then Judd Hirsch comes back as... John Hirsch is still alive and is able to come back as Jeff Goldblum's dad. Meanwhile, they look almost the same age now. <laughs> and, you know, Bill Pullman is able to come back and Brent Spiner's, you managed to bring Brent Spiner back. But, like, you can't, you're against Mae Whitman because, what, she's not hot enough anymore? She is literally a duff for one of her earliest franchises. Poor... Poor Mae Whitman. I, I, I would have loved to see her on screen here. Better than in the Duff, because I couldn't stand that thing. But, yeah, like... And then all the stuff that they borrow. 
Like I mentioned, the Star Wars effects, like the stuff they shoot from the fighters, looks like X-Wing and TIE Fighter fights from Star Wars. And the big bad is an alien queen. Like, straight up H.R. Geiger alien queen. Only now they've made her, like, three stories tall. And the big climax is them trying to kill the alien queen who was just outside of Area 51 in the Salt Flats, I guess, or something. I don't know if there were Salt Flats in, in Nevada outside of Area 51. When I think of Salt Flats, I think of Utah. But, yeah, it's a giant, like, kaiju-esque alien mother queen, whatever, from Aliens. And it's like they're, that's almost like a straight ripoff of Aliens, this design work. And yeah, like, and the other thing was the switch from practical to CGI. Like, if the CGI was rendered a little bit longer and made to look more realistic, I could have gone with it. But otherwise, there was nothing wrong with allowing for more practical stuff. Because then you can, you can obviously tell what the CGI stuff is now. Because it's just like everywhere. All of the CGI, just put it every, smear it on everything. Which is apparently what you're supposed to do. But like, in big budget stuff like Civil War, stuff you can tell is, like you can tell the Iron Man suits are CGI and a, bu- and a bunch of the Spider-Man stuff is CGI. But it go- moves fast enough and is rendered enough to the point where you can kind of look past that. Whereas here, it feels like it could have gone through like one more month of rendering to look just a little bit better. But that's just my thoughts. I think that's about it, because really there's nothing much else to talk about. It's not as good as the original, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of scratching the bottom of the barrel for sequel talk here. You know, it doesn't do anything as blasphemous as other sequels have and and like there but like with sequels like Finding Dory there's a lot more to talk about because there's so much different that they went into thinking about it whereas here it's trying to tell the same story borrowing a lot more from all other franchises and it's just not as good like the char- the new characters aren't as good the old characters are better but you can just watch the original for that so yeah Independence Day Resurgence you know too bad it, they didn't have a resurgence at the box office. <laughs> it takes them 32 seconds. admit right off the bat I kind of had a bias against this movie mainly because I first saw the trailer from a Facebook post of a friend of mine who humble brag does a lot of scuba diving out in Australia <laughs> humble yeah that's that's pretty par for the course for the kind of humble brags I get anyway she, she's a scuba diver and she's in the water all the time like she posts all kinds of amazing not Particularly, like, National Geographic quality. Although, you know, for all I know, they could be. (laughs) Uh, Depending on what equipment she uses. But, yeah, she takes fantastic underwater pictures of the stuff she sees diving around the uh, western, no, eastern coast 
of Australia. Like, I think she's only done the Great, Be- Great Barrier Reef a couple times, but she does a lot of stuff around, I think, Sydney and scuba dives on that area, around that area. And she was more pissed that it's just another lame-ass shark attack movie, and she's going to be pissed, and she hates those mainly because, thanks to Jaws and all the rip-offs that Jaws has spawned, people have this inherent bias against sharks and think of them as these horrible monstrosities that, you know, they don't feel bad about killing. They're like, they're like sea Nazis. It's okay to kill sharks because they're monsters. And sharks are just minding their own damn business. Sharks have pretty, like, feeble thinking brains. They were more designed for uh, hunting and, like, you know, they weren't designed to, like, plan elaborate revenge fantasies like like in Jaws the Revenge which I'll talk about again in this review and they're just they're just fish they're just fish minding their own business you don't need to kill them you don't need to hunt them down and cut their like oh my god there are shark attacks and so many people more people die here of bee stings and cow attacks than from shark attacks because people are more around bees and cows dogs kill more people than sharks Granted, the numbers are skewed because more people are around dogs than around sharks, but not every encounter with a shark ends in death. The t- people that get attacked by sharks are people who are, who think uh, nobody's gonna, nothing's gonna hurt me. I'm invincible. Nothing, you know, and you know they don't think about sharks attacking them from um, from beneath because they look like food. And that's the thing. Surfers get attacked all the time because the surfboard is poorly designed and makes them look like seals, like an easy prey for a shark. So if you don't want a shark to attack you, find a better way to surf. You know, either repel the shark with like LED lights or something, spook them, make sure that they recognize that you are not a, a seal. You know, I'm sure there's tech that can do that, but... Don't be pissed at the shark because the shark's just being a shark. Yeah, uh, like I, and that's going to be the big thing about my opinions on this movie. Because what we have here is a survival movie about a surfer chick in a, seclu- in a reclusive beach in Mexico who goes surfing because her mom took a picture and surfed there when she was pregnant. Which is a wonderful idea right off the bat. Great on you, mom. Surf when you're like eight months pregnant or something, whatever, whenever it was. But, but she goes surfing and manages to get herself out in the shallow end after a shark attack and is stuck at, stuck on a rock being, being, being uh, hunted by this shark. And it's about her over the next two days trying to survive the shark attack and get back to shore. And I will say this. It is the best comedy to come out this week because not only was I laughing, the theater was was making all kinds of laughing noises and like, oh, come on. Like, what is this garbage kind of reactions to what was going on? Because they came here expecting a horror movie. And what they got was a slap, was like a slapstick gory comedy because and okay so before i go into spoiler territory just know for the matter of fact if you take this movie seriously it is one of the dumbest things ever attempted by filmmakers and blake lively is nowhere near as good as she is and literally anything else i've seen her in 
whatever she's been in, she is a, she is ten times better at least in those other things than she is here. Because here she is a stupid, stupid, stupid person who deserves everything that happens to her, quite frankly, in my opinion. And if you... But, 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 if you take it as a comedy, it is an uproarious, like, feast for the macabre sense of humor. Because that's what I was... I was laughing. And I laugh at a lot of horror movies. I was laughing at The Conjuring. I took my nephew to see Insidious, and we joked about that all through it. And... Horror movies, when they try to be scary, will more often make me laugh. And here, oh my god, did they make me laugh. And I don't even know if it was intended to be funny, but it was, it was, it was, it was a laugh riot for me. So if you want to have a fun time laughing at stupid movies, I'll, uh, not, like, this isn't the room levels of bad where it's incompetence on all accounts. This was well shot, has has okay, you know, Blake Lively is not a terrible actress. You know, she's a decent actress, but the story is, and a bunch of the effect shots are just a laugh riot to behold. Okay. So with that out of the way, ooh, where do I begin? Well, let's start her out with the setup because before she goes surfing, she has some expository dialogue with her dad that reveal that she is there on that secluded beach after a really awkward and kind of obnoxious uh, conversation with uh, some Mexican guy that's dropping her off there. I don't know if he, his characters, I'm guessing, supposed to be Mexican because it's in Mexico, but I don't even know if the, what the actor is. But, yeah, it's, it's like some Spanglish kind of conversation she has between... The, she has with the guy who's taking her to this beach and she never finds out what the name of it is, which I guess is supposed to be like a joke on her. Like, she, oh my God, and she never finds out what the name of the beach was. But when she's there, she gets a call from her dad and there's expository dialogue about how her mom died. And it's revealed that she was born in 1991. And Blake Lively looks like she's damn near pushing 40. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not ageist against actresses. Like, if an actress is supposed to be playing a certain age, like, how many times do actors in their late 20s, like, Luke Perry was playing a high schooler. And, I mean, that's the joke that you have adult actors to play young actors. Like, the kid who's playing uh, Spider-Man is a couple years younger than me, I think. And he's from Britain. And so was... Andrew Garfield. I think Andrew Garfield was in his 20s when he was playing Spider-Man. So, yeah, I know that. I'm, there's nothing wrong with the age. You know, an older actor playing a younger age. You know, I mean, playing an age isn't a problem. You gotta look that age. And all throughout this movie, look at... Because there are close-up shots of... Well, first of all, Blake Lively's TNA. Because that... Straight up. Big like extreme close-up shots of TNA all throughout this movie. The gratuitous levels of TNA, like almost like gross levels of, like, okay, we get it. She looks good. If I wanted to watch a porn, I had to stay at home and left the ad block on at Pornhub. <laughs> they don't like it when you do that. They want that ad revenue. But 
when it's on her face, she's got like these deep, deep lines in her face. And like, it looks like a either a botched facelift or just like 40 years of living crammed in apparently 25 because she was born in 1991. And if this is present day, tw- and no, she says April 2016 is when the movie takes place. So, 91 to 2016 is 25 years. Simple math. Blake Lively is 29, I believe, currently. She's about to turn 30. She'll turn 30 in, 19, in 2017. So she is 28, 29 right now. Simple thing, right? You know, she's a little bit older than the character she's playing. That shouldn't be a problem. Except for the fact that she looks freaking 40. Like, we're supposed to glean the fact that she's in her late 20s, and she is, and yet... The way they made her look on camera just showed all kinds of, like, almost, like, deep levels of skin against bone in her face that made her look like she was in her 40s. And, like, there is no way in hell this woman is 25. And, yeah, look it up, she's 29. 28, 29, something like that, depending on when her birthday was in 87. So yeah, this woman is about as Blake Lively is about as old as my brother, who was born in '87. I was born in '88. She's not about. She's a little bit older than me. She probably would have been the grade ahead of me or in my brother's grade. And she's supposed to be playing a few years younger than me, 90, 91. She looks like she's pushing forty. How how do you mess that up? How? What did you do to her face? Was it just like the HD camera got like way too close and somebody decided not to put makeup because she'd be in the water too long? They have waterproof makeup. My God. There's, where's the makeup department on this movie? You use it for the, for the bloody scenes, but there's no makeup on her freaking face to make her look younger? Like make her look more youthful? Because she looks like she's lived a hard 40 years. And she's only like 28, 29. And she's supposed to be playing 25. What What did you do? What did you do? Anyway. that That's just a, that's just something that bugged me so bad about this movie. And I don't have a problem with women aging. Or, you know, women looking older. But if your character is supposed to be 25, you do your damnedest to make your character look 25. And all of the close-up shots of her face, either like profile or just like extreme close-up, all made her look like she's pushing 40. What the hell happened to her? Anyway, after... It was also during that conversation with her dad that it's revealed that her mom died of cancer. And because of that, she dropped out of medical school. Because medicine couldn't save her mom from dying of cancer. Like, I get that she needed a break from... Like, if they said she needs a break from medical school because the death hit her personally, that's that's believable. That's something that people do. If somebody is sick from cancer and you want to focus on them, yeah, she would have dropped out of medical school to take care of her mom if she wanted... You know, that was an issue. And the the shock of her mom dying would lead somebody to drop out of a school of some kind. You know, to do something crazy because it's like, you're shocked, you're dealing with the shock of losing that loved one. 
That's understandable. That's that that happens to people almost every day. I'm guessing, you know, or every other day because of how many people, you know, the birth death ratio. But yeah, that shock. I can imagine her leaving medical school because her mom died. Why would she leave medical school? Because the medicine couldn't save her mom from dying. Do you realize you were in medical school? We'll get into my issues with that with that story element later, but you were supposedly in medical school. What kind of medical school do you go to where you where you believe that medicine should have outright saved your mom's life? You are probably around cancer patients on a daily basis when you're studying medicine. You should understand the difficulties of people dying from cancer. Cancer is not a voodoo magic machine. You know, it's not like a, a just like a magical plot convenience fairy. It, 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 cancer is this unique... It, it, you don't just get the streptococcus virus, you know? You don't get a strain of a virus or a bacterium that makes you sick. Cancer, from my best understanding, gleaned from BBC coverage of cancer research is cancer is an, a genetic trait in your cells where a certain cell will not will have a, a, a bad gene and that gene continues to produce reproduce cells when and it can't turn that mechanism off in, in the coding of the DNA. And it's either benign in some cases or malignant, of course. And sometimes you require radi radiation therapy or all kinds of chemotherapy to kind of to battle against that uh, overacting cell. Like, I'm, this is what I'm gleaning from what I've heard of cancer, not knowing anybody really directly with cancer. But from what I'm gleaning, what I've... From what I'm understanding, and anybody can correct me about, you know, cancer, you know, study and treatment and whatnot. But yeah, each cancer, everybody's cancer is different. Like, people may have similar cancers, but, like, you can have entirely different types of cancer depending on where it is in the body, what the issue is with the cell, what the issue, you know, like, you know, all the different aspects of cancer are, like... I like like could fill could fill an entire Wikipedia of its own, you know, because Wikipedia is like terabytes upon terabytes of information, and the, you could go into that depth of cancer study and looking into cancer and how cancer functions in your body and what it does to your body and how to, the best ways to treat it, and like people are trying to do gene therapy on it now and. You should understand that can't, you can't save everybody from cancer just because you study medicine. Do you, are you, do you see why I'm having a problem with her leaving medical school because her mom died of cancer? Not because, you know, the shock of it, she just had to get away from everything. That's understandable. That I would believe. She specifically says in the movie to her dad, that because medicine couldn't save her mom, she dropped out of medical school. You were a terrible, terrible doctor. I would never want a doctor as flippant as you. Well, one of my patients died. Time to drop out of medicine. Flip table. Can't stand this nonsense. 
you, how do you, how do you fail to comprehend medicine that badly? You fail to comprehend the basis of medicine itself. Medicine is to treat sickness. You can't cure death. If it happens, it happens. Who wrote this? Who thought this was okay? Oh, I'm dropping out of medical school because medicine couldn't save my mom's life. Oh, well. Although she is from Galveston, Texas, so... Maybe she is that stupid. No offense to Texas listeners if you're out there. You know. <laughs> Go Lone Star State. Anyway. Yeah, that, I have all kinds of issues with that sort of logic and reasoning. But we're going to find out how stupid this woman is. Because after a surfing montage with some local guys who also surf there. And one guy's got a GoPro who's going to be the holder of the MacGuffin for later, or a MacGuffin, a thing that she's going to utilize for the plot. She, as when they leave, and she wants to get one more surf in, she surfs up to a literal beached whale carcass. But like, well, first off, there is a Obviously, CGI shot of dolphins swinging past her as a cheap scare for what we, what people thought was supposed to be a shark because they shot it Jaws style coming at her from the bottom. And, oh, look, it's dolphins. They're never going to show up in the movie again. It would be like I, when we get into it later, those dolphins could have easily come back. But no, it's really obviously CGI dolphins looking like they swam off a PS3 game swimming towards something in the distance, and she swims up to it, and it's a beached whale carcass. Listen to me. I want you to listen to me right now. There's going to be some spikes in the audio because of this, but I want you to listen to me. If there was a beached whale anywhere near, any beach, wherever you are, if there's a beached whale there, and it's this one had festering sores. Festering bloody sores being picked at by seagulls and this and this future enemy shark probably for days. Probably for that entire day. We don't know when the I don't know the rate of decay for whales, but this one had festering wounds all over it. If you were within a mile offshore from that whale carcass, you would have freaking smelled it! What is wrong with you? And then she just swims to... I'm trying to think of the best way. I don't want to say ground zero because that's offensive, but to point blank range of the whale carcass. She is within, her nose is against the dying skin of the whale carcass. And then because of the shark attack, she climbs on top of the whale carcass. The dead, festering whale carcass. And not once did she ever throw up.
whilst it was anywhere near that whale carcass. <laughs> what is wrong with you people? Not you listeners, but the people making the to the people making this movie. What fantasy world do you live in? That number one, she wouldn't have smelled that whale carcass from her hotel room. Number two, she would just out of Alice in Wonderland levels of curiosity swim out to the whale carcass to investigate it. And number three, not once, never on screen once does she ever just vomit up her entire GI tract from being anywhere near this festering whale carcass, especially when she digs her hands into its dead festering wounds and just grips into it and climbs it to get away from the killer shark. How did none of that make her just, just vomit up everything she had ever eaten in her life? That is, in you are living in a freaking fantasy world. If that, if just being on that beach didn't make her want to hurl, <coughs> I'm making myself sick. Mm. Yes, she investigates this whale carcass, and that's when the first shark attack happens, and it gets right into her leg. But thankfully, it's barely skin deep like people have lost entire limbs to a shark attack but this one oh it just went in the nibble it just wanted to sink its little teethies in give it a taste because it's not even through her it's it's not because that's the thing a shark bite will encompass your entire limb and that and that was and that you know that bite will either clear off, just go through the bone and rip it off. Or it'll just tear an entire chunk of flesh off of you. This one shark bite goes, it's just apparently the top half of the shark's jaw and it only goes through the top of her leg. Like, there's, like, there, like, it didn't even get a full bite in, apparently. Because it doesn't even go through the bottom of the leg. It's only through the top. Ugh. So, yeah, the shark bites, she climbs the whale carcass and then manages to escape it by going over to some rocks and stepping on fire coral, which I don't even think looked like actual fire coral. It just looked like generic, you know, fake coral that you buy for your aquarium. And so she sits on this rock, avoiding the shark. And then she, because, because, because she was in medical school on an unnamed study track. Because that's the thing. If you know anything about medicine, you know that there are a myriad, there are, you know, like the amount of, Education, like the amount of things you can study at a at an actual on a full college undergraduate level, that sort of wide array of what you can study is 
is itself within the medical field. There are so many things you could study. And she's just, just studying basic medicine. Like, they don't even say, like, what she wanted to study to be a doctor of. She, she want to be a general practitioner, you know, a physician. Does she want to be uh, oral, you know, like, do, do stuff with dentistry and oral surgery? Does she want to do, you know, straight up orthopedic stuff? Does she want to work with joints? Does she want to work with muscle? You know, does she want to work with therapies of some kind? Does she want to work with, on top, you know, uh, she could be an oncologist and work with cancer and cancer treatments. She could be a radiologist and do x-rays and stuff. She could be, you know, but based on, based on what we see, all we can, all I can glean is apparently she was a surgeon because she does like, like boy scout levels of first aid on her half a shark bite by using her golden necklace to pierce the skin and her earrings as stitches. And, th and then, do you want to know what she does, audience? She washes the wound, the bite, the open wound on her leg. She washes that wound with seawater. Do you know what is in seawater? It's not just salt and water. There are entire ecosystems of microscopic creatures living in seawater. It's part of the reason why you're not supposed to drink it. Number one, the salt makes it a diuretic. Number two, because of the mineral minerality of the salt, because it's not just table salt, it's all kinds of different saline substances. And number, th and number three, there's living things in that water. There are living things in that water. That just as there are in fresh water that it hasn't been treated. That's why you're not supposed to drink out of flowing waters and especially not standing bodies of water like lakes or ponds. There are microscopic living things in those waters. So, in an act of desperation, she washes the, the open wound in seawater. And I get, maybe, you know, you could argue that that's a necessity because she does have to wash the wound. But knowing what, you know, basics I know of medicine and of biology and, of, you know, of gen general science, I know that I, at least I would gather with what little I know that... You would be better off with an open wound with no, ex with no extra interference from salt. You know, if you, if you had the choice to wash your open wound with seawater, with ocean water, or to just, you know, skip that phase and patch it up as best you can with what she, with, she uses a, like, scuba, like, shirt. Like, she's got one of the, uh, she's only got a watered shirt. Like, she, you know, she doesn't have, like, the, the suit, full suit, which is her first problem. I don't know, you know, like, you, you wouldn't you want a full suit? You wouldn't just want the shirt so you could just zip it up to your freaking cleavage? God, this movie's so stupid. 
But yet she uses that as the bandage once she stitched it with her earrings. And yeah, that's tough. That's good for her that she, she thought to do that. Wouldn't it be better if you just left the wound as it was and just did, did not just grab handfuls of seawater and rub it into your open wound like you're trying to be the manliest woman in the world? Like, what the what is wrong with you? And there is no, like there is like the amount of pain you would feel from the salt entering the wound and God knows what else going into that open wound and uh, you the kind of pain you would be in from that. From pouring water across the wound. None of that enters her performance. And her, like, like, it, like, she does the, ah, ah, like she's in pain. But no, if you poured salt water on your open wound, you would be in agony. Like, well, she is, she should be in absolute agony. Screaming until she is hoarse. Before, like, she's hoarse towards the end of the movie, but she should be, like, dying from the salt water rubbing into her open wound. Mm. I'm so hung up on these mini, you know, my, <laughs> minute details. But yeah, this movie is that freaking stupid and just not thought out in the least. Like, this woman is supposedly a surfer. Yet the only, like, protective gear that she manages to bring is a single top, long sleeve top wetsuit, you know, wetsuit top shirt, wet shirt, that she only zips up to her cleavage. And I get that it's a freaking movie. You know, this isn't applying by real world logic, but if you're going to do this, why? Why, why would... Why would <laughs> Why have her wear the shirt at all other than to, I guess, make it tighter so her boobs stick together? Why have the shirt? If if you're going to get a wetsuit of any kind, why would you just get the top half? You might as well have gotten the bottom half, but then we wouldn't see her bikini and her bikini bottoms and make sure we get a good shot of all of her legs. Oh, yeah, we got to see that butt. This isn't, this isn't a freaking porno. We don't, a surfer should wear, like, a, a full-on wet, and you know what would help against stuff like fire coral is shoes, like, like, some decent shoes, you know, like, like, some wet shoes, surfing shoes, scuba shoes, you know, stuff that you can put on your feet to cover them so that, you know, you don't step on fire coral and get, and hurt yourself. Uh so yeah, this 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 woman apparently only brings a wet shirt, a wetsuit shirt top, zips it up to her cleavage to surf. Thankfully, she manages to. Re thankfully, she remembers to put the little Velcro bit on her leg so she doesn't fall. You know, so she doesn't lose her surfboard. God, this woman is stupid. Ugh. Anyway, meanwhile, while she is on that rock, dying from salt water and her open shark bite wound. She meets a little seagull. I call him Pico. She calls him Steven in the movie. I call him Pico because it reminds me of Pico the sea, the Wingle from Ruby and Sapphire, the Pokemon games. So this is her little Pico, and he's got a busted wing. And he just, it, if this movie was meant to be serious, there would have been no seagull at all because th guess what? This whole time she's worried about that shark, 
There's a seagull in the background. Like, the seagull was just in the shot. Like, oh, crap. We got a seagull in the shot. Somebody shoot the bird off. Bird's not going away, sir. Fine. Leave it in. Just interact with the bird, even. Who cares? But, yeah, like, there's just a, there's just a seagull. Seagull in the back of the shot. And every so often there would be, like, a reaction from the seagull. Like, like, the, like she needed an audience of some kind, you know? Somebody to act off of. You know? There's just a seagull standing in the background of the shots. The supposedly scary shots, and the seagulls just standing there being like, meh, meh, mine, 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 meh, meh, meh. Flap, flap, flap. Meh, meh. Oh, God. It's like her little, and her own little Winston. Winston! Winston! Oh, Winston! Meh, meh. Maybe I should have called the bird Winston, because that's what it is to this movie. I'm, I'm identifying more with the bird than with freaking Blake Lively. Uh, so yeah, little birdie keeps her company. Little seagull. And so all these tense scenes of her trying to get attention from people on shore. And, you know, trying to avoid shark attacks. Further shark attacks and trying to find food of some kind. And just, you know, there's just a little seagull. And she even feeds the seagull. Like, she chews on a crab and throws it up. And the seagull eats it. You know, so this is his mama. Mama, mama lively feeding the seagull. Ooh, Pico. Ooh, Pico. Mine. 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 Oh, God, this movie is so stupid. It is, it is, it is awful. It is just, anyway. Going ahead, there's like a scene of her and a drunk, of her trying to get the attention of a drunk guy. Instead of saying, ayudame, ayudame, you know, help, help, help. You know, get help, get help, go get help. She directs, she, she does the dumb white girl thing of showing her, showing the drunk guy who was passed out on the beach where her stuff is. And the guy robs her. And I'm like, good, good. Screw you, stupid. You don't say, use my phone. You say, ayudame. Uh, I'm, I'm, oh God, what is ambulance in... In Spanish, uh, ambu, ambu, ambulance, nah, you know, call, call doctor, doctor, you know, uh, doctore, el doctore, uh, that's the thing, if I'm going to any, when I went to Italy for choir tour, because uh, the choir I was in in college has a fund that allows us to go on international little tours, so this past time around, they went to Germany and Austria and around that sort of Central European area. And for my time, they went to Italy. And so when they went, when we went to Italy, I made damn sure I had a basic level of interacting with people in Italian. You know, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't fluent in Italian by any means. But using what I had learned from Latin, because I was that kid who studied Latin in high school because it was offered, because quite frankly, the Latin teacher was awesome. He came up with his own verb, to deflesh, ex carnificare. He gave his little nicknames. I was Solursus, a sun bear. He thought of it as a sun bear. I like it. Anyway, I studied Latin in high school. I had a basic understanding from studying music, you know, speaking, I had a, I had studied diction, so I knew how to speak Italian, you know, relatively, you know, not relatively speaking, but yeah, I, I knew how to uh, accent Italian, I knew how to at least pronounce Italian, so I wasn't like, y'all know where that ill tappy is, you know, I wasn't doing that sort of nonsense, you know, 
Where can I get a pizza around here? You know where a good pizza is? You guys got a Domino's over here? You know, it wasn't anything like that. But I understood, you know, basic, like, Italian 101, let's say. And... When I was around Italy, if I needed to speak, you know, I, you know, I, at first I communicated with English, you know, you know English, you know, English, English, you, you know, you speak English, and if they did, great, we continued in English, and I, you know, I thanked them, grazie, and then I went on my way. If I didn't speak English, I at least understood how to do a couple things. Water, bathroom, and I'm pretty sure I knew at least doctor, but... There were also people around me who spoke better Italian. At least I wanted to understand a, a few basics. Because, like, it came in handy at one point when my mom had to go to the bathroom and we didn't know where to go because there wasn't, like, a standing public restroom. So I went up to a nearby restaurant and she's like, don't, don't glass them. Yeah, they'll probably want us to buy something first. And I was like, uh, uh, that she didn't know how to say bathroom in Italian. And I made sure, you know, I, look, I did a quick look through while they're arguing about how, how, where she can go to the bathroom. And I'm just like, eh, 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 it's just like in Spanish. So I'm like, hey, il baño, il baño. And he's like, yeah, it's back there, you know, in Italian. And he directs her to the bathroom and she goes. So, I mean, like, I have a basic understanding of the language around you. This girl's from Texas. I understand not everybody in Texas speaks Spanish, but you're around Spanish. You'd think you would have picked up the basics. Ayudame for help, something for doctor, something for shark, something for, you know, ayudame. Just ayudame. Help. 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 The one thing you want to know is the, the, you know, not water. If you're not going to learn water, just say help. A way to cry out for help in your in whatever country you're visiting, whatever language they speak, learn help, if nothing else. Food, water, shelter, bathroom, whatever. If you know help, you can mime everything else. Help makes people know, oh, this person is in, a, in an emergency. I should help them if they're you know, a, a good Samaritan. But no, she, she barely understands Spanish, and this moron decides to point all her valuables out to this drunk bum of who knows what is lying face down on the beach with a complete with a bottle of tequila to complete the stereotype. And he looked like Cheech Marin, for God's sake. This guy couldn't have been more of a stereotype. But yeah, guys, Rob's are blind. And then with her phone in his pocket and her wallet, he decides to forgo all the other valuables because he sees her surfboard in the water. I'm not a surfing man. I live in Ohio, so I'm not near big enough waves to go surfing. I'm not around surfing culture. I couldn't tell you how much surfboards go for. Yeah, I don't know how much retail price for a surfboard is. I could probably guarantee you you're not going to get much for a secondhand surfboard. So unless there was like some reason, this guy had no reason to go for her surfboard. He had a $600 iPhone. At least $600 iPhone. That's going to last him much more than the surfboard. The surfboard's not going to grant him $1,000 or double the price of the iPhone. It wasn't like, it looked like something you could buy at a Walmart. You know, it wasn't like the high-end freaking surfboard model out there. It wasn't like something that people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to own. It was a generic surfboard. There was no reason for him to go steal her surfboard other than to put him in the water so that he could die from a shark bite. 
which goes in half, which cuts him directly in half. God damn, this movie's stupid. So yeah, after the after Cheech Mar after Fatter Cheech Marin gets cut, just gets bitten straight up in half by a shark, and ruins her iPhone also by going into the water for a freaking surfboard. Uh, the two guys come back. They they die from the shark attack, and the one guy's GoPro she uses to record a message to anybody who finds the GoPro as like a, a message in a bottle. And then it's like this big climactic battle with the shark, where she like goes off, goes to a buoy uh, that's a bit off in the distance, and there's a flare gun there, and somehow there was gas or oil on the water surface. So she lights the shark on fire and then it and then it dives deeper and washes the oil and fire off and goes after her on the buoy. And then it's like this big climactic battle with the shark. And God damn, this movie is stupid. It is the dumbest. This is almost Jaws. This is definitely Jaws three levels of stupid. But it almost, like, there was almost a point where I was like, if you freaking say smile, you son of a bitch, aiming the flare gun at the shark, I'm going to call you freaking Jaws 5, the revengeing. Because, <laughs> just, <laughs> this movie is stupid. Uh, yeah, fun fact for those who haven't seen it. Jaws 4, the revenge, features a roaring shark. An animal that has no lungs roars at the screen. As it's you know, as the protagonist shoots it, we were almost to that level of stupid with this movie. And the sh the shark is entirely a CGI creation, and you can tell that from the get. There is no level of me that's scared for this woman because that is that is something you did in After Effects, and I can tell. Damn it! So yeah, she kills the shark and and washes ashore, and is saved by the guy who drove her there at the beginning of the movie. And then there's a uh, epilogue scene of her taking her sister surfing in Galveston. And she's and she uh, it's a year later and she got her doctorate in something. She like she got her MD, I'm guessing. In what? I don't know. They never go into what kind of medicine she freaking ah! God, this movie is stupid. So yeah, if you want to have a good time Go watch this in a movie theater that allows alcohol and just laugh. Laugh at this movie. This movie is bad and you should feel bad. Ah! They're poor farmers. Deserters. Who, frankly, sir, don't have much to lose. The winds are shifting. And you can't fight it this time. Last up this weekend, it was something I had been looking forward to when I heard it announced. This is a biopic starring Matthew McConaughey about probably the best man to come out of Mississippi. I don't want to say that outright he is the best man to come out of Mississippi, but he is probably one of the best men to come out of Mississippi. This is a guy by the name of Newton Knight. And this other podcast I listen to called The Dollop that does history stuff talked about Newton Knight. And he is a Mississippi native. 
who is best known for founding the Free State of Jones, because he was based out of Jones County, Mississippi. This takes place during the Confederate War, you know, during you know, in the heat of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And while he's battling in you know further north, he comes back to find out that the Confederate, you know, the Confederate States of America, his government has been like going Robin Hood levels of stealing the people, you know, stealing property, especially like cotton and food from the citizens, the people who aren't fighting to give to the soldiers because they literally have nothing. They have no means of, you know, there's not like a, a, an IRS for the CSA. This is a poorly managed and thought out, you know, mo- you know molly coddle, I think is the, the term for it. But, you know, just like this, this poorly thought out idea of a country and government where they literally have to go through like freaking sheriff of Nottingham style and steal people saying, Hey, this is our 10% tax. You know, you know, this it, 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 it's you know, That's why people were pissed. And that's what led to the Newton Knight founding the free state of Jones, which is like an independent sort of originally like a, a state, like a, you, you know, like part of, the United States, but when the when Sherman and the Union didn't want them, they were like, "We're our own nation state." You know, screw everybody. We're you know, I'm gonna found my own country with blackjack and hookers. But yeah, he's at fir- well. First off, he deserts. But before all that happens, he deserts the Confederate Army and lives out in the Mississippi swamps with runaway slaves. And he sort of kind of you know, as time progresses, more and more. Confederates desert the desert the army and live out there in the swamps with Newton Knight and the slave and the runaway slaves. And eventually, it reaches the point where he decides, "Hey, can you get us some guns?" And they start fighting back against these jerk offs from the Confederate, you know, from the from I think Richmond was the capital, but you know, these jerk offs who are like, you know, the the local. Uh, sheriffs and like the guys stealing from people and he goes all robin hood on them and steals stuff back and says screw you you're not gonna just take our stuff you know what a man you know and it's a it's it is its own little secession so the confederate states secede from the from the union because of economic reasons well economic reasons being that slaves were cheap labor and they didn't want to have to pay slaves as people as actual workers, because that would, you know, mean they would have to acknowledge black people were humans and not property. So, yeah, anytime somebody says, oh, they did it for economic reasons. And, uh, blah, 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 and, yeah, those economic reasons are because they didn't want to pay for the for their massive workforce. You don't kid yourself. And, yeah, don't kid yourself that the union was any prize either, because the because the union was just as terrible to black people. You know, they would sell people right back to the South, most people. Because, yeah, there are just as many racists up North. Don't don't freaking kid yourself that the North was the big, shining white knight saving the black people from the South. They were treated just as bad up North. Anyway, yeah. That, that, this is going to be a mildly race-themed discussion because it is about race, ultimately, you know. The main thing Newton Knight does is he wants to go back to kind of what the founders wanted. The idea that what a man, you know, the main thing was he used the passage from the Bible about what you reap is what you sow. 
and specifically using that to interpreting that as what a man plants in the ground is his to own, you know? And then he goes on to say, people, you know, everybody is equal. People aren't property. You're a child of God. You're not, you know, pro- you know you're not a man's property. And he gets a lot of support from the communities because they've been screwed over by the Confederacy because the Confederacy has been ransacking their farms for, for every sort of resource they can get because they didn't think anything out. They're like, screw you. And then they realized, oh, crap, we have no infrastructure or idea how to, you know, get resources to the soldiers that are needed. So it's like, just steal it. Just just grab everything if people won't take you know just full-on taxation without representation you know <laughs> you know, it's exactly what the founders had to deal with from england so yeah it's no wonder that these mississippians joined newton knight and found this free state of jones because they wanted to be free from this garbage nonsense the confederacy was putting them through and then as that goes on he gets a lot of support on Till he demands that black people are equals. Like, he makes friends with a guy named Moses, who is a runaway slave that he helped out by taking off one of these, like, almost medieval-style, like, neck traps that he had on. And he, you know, essentially gets a second wife, not legally, but, you know, you know, by all accounts, a second wife in a former house servant by the name of Rachel. And... He or she's played at by a mixed, you know, mixed race woman. She's lighter skinned, whereas a lot of the other runaway slaves that you see and a lot of the black people you see in the movie are much darker skinned. This actress was, you know, much lighter skinned. I don't know if that's how light Rachel, the actual Rachel Knight was, but either way, you know, yeah, it's a mixed race couple on screen. And the thing was, what they don't tell you in the movie is that they, that Newton Knight had like two other former slave, you know, former house slaves as his wives after Rachel, I think Rachel left him or died, one of the two, and he married and he gets second and third wives that are former house slaves that are you know women of color. This guy loved himself some dark chocolate, you know. He, he had blacker to berry, sweeter the juice. That's what Newton Knight thought. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the Mississippians did not agree with. Newton on that. And after the South loses and the United States is whole again, he starts, you know, he helps out and becomes and it becomes more about the black people trying to get their civil rights because, yeah, they were they, they you saw the passage of the 13th Amendment and the passage of the 15th Amendment that said, you know, you know, you cannot discriminate. You know, every American is allowed the right to vote, except women as of yet but yeah you can't discriminate voting because of color of this because of the color of your skin and that would be misinterpreted in all kinds of ways and it still is because people are always trying to gerrymander the vote in their favor because politicians are garbage and awful and everybody knows it and we can't do anything about it but yeah newton becomes almost a secondary character to moses who starts taking more of the forefront because it's about him leading the, it's, I think it's the civil union or something. He, a union league, the union league that Moses founds in Jones County, Mississippi to promote black, you know, former slaves to vote and register to vote. And 
it's become it's them fighting back against the hatred and bigotry and just outright racism of the South. And even after the war is lost, these good old boys spit at Newton and consider him no better than a, you know, that, that word that I, I, I shouldn't say that I, I don't have any right to say anyway. They get, they consider him no better than any of the other freed slaves. And, you know, it's just him fighting back from one of the punch these hill rod mouth breathing troglodytes in their dirty caveman faces because these, uh, if you're like me and you consider that kind of backwards, hateful logic that these people and a lot of people still to this day hold against not just you know african americans and you know those people of color but people of hispanic descent people of native descent and people of, just just you probably even find people who are racist against italians still or you know against the irish or the poles you know people who are racist against the individual subsets of european culture yeah, speaking of racist, Europe is one of the most racist places ever. That's where the idea of white superiority started. Was in frickin' Europe, was these, you know, high-minded, person-owning jerk-offs writing scientific papers that were published in places like the American Medical Journal, I think, and just uh, all kinds of legitimate journals across Europe saying, yeah, Whites are scientifically provably better than blacks. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing when you skew the results like that and just make things up? Isn't that amazing? Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. Uh, all while the back stuff is going on during the Civil War era, you also see flash forwards to 1949, I want to say, late 40s. And something that they covered more in the dollop about it was because he had several black wives, Newton Knight's entire family was right out discriminated against not only by the, the cities and counties where they lived, but by the freaking state of Mississippi. And what they show you in the movie to kind of illustrate that is this one major case where a descendant of his has to argue, has to sue because has, is is under criminal is you know is in a criminal case against him because he is one eighth African American, he is one eighth Negro, colored blood as they say in the movie. That's the other thing. This movie drops a lot of the n bombs. So yeah, I won't say it, but you get to see Matthew McConaughey. Say it. A lot. Not Quentin Tarantino levels of uncomfortable a lot, but, you know, if you're, you know, this is pro when Quentin Tarantino said him dropping the N-bombs in Django Unchained was, hey, it's just what they said at the time. Yeah, that's garbage, and he knows it. I think Free State of Jones is probably a more accurate level of how much they, like, it wasn't every other word. It's whenever the subject came up, you know, they, they would drop it sometimes. And sometimes they wouldn't, you know, like there are points where 
um, Newton Knight says, you know, these other white guys might as well be ends. And, you know, so he'll he'll say it in defense of the freed of the runaway slaves. And he's not, you know, he's not dropping it left and right. Like, hey, hey, I got black friends. I can say that word. <laughs> you know, it's nothing like that. It's every so often somebody drops the bomb and it's enough to be uncomfortable, but not enough to be like offensive, I think. I mean, if you're offended by the word in general, yes, this is going to be, it's offensive because they do drop it, you know, and it's mostly white people saying it because white people, especially in Civil War era Mississippi, are garbage hill rod people who are the kind of people you expect to drop N-bombs all over the place. Like, you don't hear a lot of, you know, African-American actors in the movie dropping it. You hear mostly white people. And the only good person who drops it is Newton Knight. And he drops it in defense, kind of like throwing it back at these guys' faces. Like, you know, it's like, you think this guy's an N, you're the N. You know, it's, he's one of the, you know, it's that kind of argument. It's a great defense. I'm not defending the use of the N-word other than historical accuracy. Like, way more so than Django Unchained. Like, way more so. Like, it, it, it only comes up a couple times. Like, when they directly face the prejudice of the era. When that comes up, that's when it's dropped. If, if it's not that, then, it, then, it, then it's either just, you know, just the regular prejudice without the N-word, or it's, you know, it's not, the, or it's like, when he says, you're, you know, you're not a, you know, you're not property. You're a child of God. He, I don't. I think he may have dropped it in that in that reference more so to like illustrate the fact that nobody's an N word, that we are all ch- children of God. But yeah, I mean, I'm not. The, this is awkward because yes, people, especially white people, said that word in that time period. So it is more accurate than Django Unchained. It doesn't make it comfortable. But so if you're uncomfortable with dropping the N-bomb, and especially white people dropping the N-bomb, that's going to be an issue. I will say that aside from that, I think Newton Knight is probably the best, like I said, the the, the best person to come out of Mississippi. Because he fought against the garbage nonsense of the Confederacy and then realized, oh, yeah, the Union isn't much better. The Union's just as bad. And he, he, there's a point, there are several, like after a certain point, you see the end of the war and he has to reintegrate back into the, into the United States. And all those assholes from the Confederacy are now like judges and sheriffs and like hold positions of power. And, and it's like, wow, the system really is freaking rigged. So as much as it is a race movie from a white main character's point of view, admittedly, and this is also a, 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 a harsh, harsh look at the realities of political corruption and stuff that goes on even to this day. Like, you could see a lot of what goes on with the politics in this movie and of that time period to be like, wow, things just, just, just have not changed. It really, like, as much as time has advanced and technology has improved, you realize, oh, wow, yeah, these political machinations are are like still in place and it's, and it's awful and it's still awful. Yeah. You're going to see a lot of correlations to what's going on. Like this was almost the perfect time to bring up this movie and bring up the idea of Newton Knight seceding from the Confederacy and founding his own little nation state in Mississippi. And then to realize, Oh yeah, these people are still freaking awful. 
Like these people, like he, Newton Knight is the best person in this movie. And he gets help from like a saloon owner. And there's certain points where his wife comes back, played by Carrie Russell, his legal wife and the father of his first child. And you know, she leaves because of financial reasons and because this guy's off doing living in the swamp, being a crazy person. And then she comes back because Sherman's March took everything from her for a second time. First, it was Confederacy. And then Sherman ransacked her farm in Georgia where she moved. So she comes back because she had nowhere else to go. And Newton Knight welcomes her back in and makes her part of the family, which he didn't have to do. Freaking Newton Knight, man. I mean, he is some kind of guy. You know, he, he, he's progressive for that era. Um, you know, just like you wish there were more people in any era like Newton Knight. And that's not to say he's perfect either. I mean, he's shacking up with black women while he's legally married to Carrie Russell. So he's not like perfect. But at the same time, he, you know, he's fighting for, you know, equality for the races and against government tyranny. I mean, he is he is what the Tea Party should have been until it got all caught up in immigration and, and, and you know, coincidentally, racism. Because when immigration comes up, the only reason it comes up is usually because of racism. Let's, let's be honest. That's not going to go over well. Anyway, Free State of Jones, it's not doing well. Like, it's like 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's one of those, it's like the case I had with the 33, how that was like all, all the way down in the 30s rotten because freaking high-minded, quote-unquote, woke critics think like, oh, this movie doesn't do anything out of the ordinary. It is of no, you know, they think because it didn't, like, freaking, ex- it's not experimental filmmaking that all of a sudden it's garbage. But no, this movie is, uh, it's not perfect, but it's good. Like, you, you deserve to hear the story of Newton Knight. So if you, I recommend you go see this movie, definitely. Out of everything that comes out this week, go see Free State of Jones and support that movie. And then I definitely recommend you listen to the Newton Knight episode of The Dollop to get a more, because the thing about that is, Dave Anthony researches the hell out of every topic and he goes into way more detail than the movie ever could. And yeah, free state of Jones. I'm going to go see it again because my nephew is out of town and he definitely wants to see that he is big war buff and he, and he loves the dollop. So he's going to want to see this movie. And so I'll see it again and I'll, you know, I'll comment it on the second time I see it, if it's any better. Anyway, that does it for the movie reviews this week. This week's discussion is going to be on dead horse tropes. I'll explain that after the break. I said over and over and over again, this dance is going to be a trap. gleaned it from the words yet dead horse movie plots are what i like to call you know you know how people say that these tropes are overused in movies this is kind of that but it's more of a story element based not just like individual cliches like like good guy wins the girl or damsel in distress or you know that sort of thing it's not one in, you know it's not individual aspects of storytelling it's entire plot lines and what 
inspired this was The Shallows. Because one of the things that I am done, just done seeing in movies is shark attacks. Oh, look, it's a... Oh my goodness, it's a dangerous shark. He's coming right for us. Pap, pap, pap. Jimbo reference. No, I'm, I, I don't care. Like, yeah, I'm guessing this came out because it's Shark Week and right now. This is going to be Shark Week when I release this, but I, I'd rather learn about actual sharks than watch this CGI monstrosity, and that's the thing. Like, all the, they have done shark movies to death. One of the most popular franchises right now is Sharknado because it's reached that level of utter nonsense. So yeah, I'm done with shark movies. No more shark movies. Do something else for a change. At least The Revenant had a bear for once, so it's not a freaking shark. No more sharks. We're done with sharks. No sharks. Moving on. The other thing that brought this up was couple, I think last week, The Conjuring 2, where it's a supernatural horror movie based on a true story. And if you're going to involve the devil and magic in your story, then it's not a true story. Do I have to explain this to you like you're a five-year-old? Santa Claus isn't real. Neither is the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. And magic and Satan don't exist. Oh, but God definitely exists, kids. We don't want to give up that lie. God. Just sick of all this. Not like, I think a horror movie is better when you don't try to make it sound real. Like the, idea, like, the stuff that Stephen King does, none of it's real. None of it's based on true stories. It may be inspired by his life and events he has seen and things that have happened to him, but it's never just... You know, oh, this is the truth. This, this is every, everything in this thing is true. Because when you do that, you, we know you're lying. We outright know you're lying at that point. So yeah, no more true story horror. The Amityville horror was a fake, and so was the Conjuring nonsense. That stuff doesn't exist, and the stuff that they show you is fake until proven otherwise. Until you literally see an actual manifest, you know, because that's the thing. Photos are, are lies. They can easily be manipulated. You know, you can see that in stuff now. Look how easy it is now to see CGI. It may have been harder back in the day. So if you see something like... But even then, there were tricks you could do with the developing process to make that happen. Is This isn't This isn't just... You know, this isn't magic. I'm th <sighs> so yeah, the one thing that can take me out of a horror movie is to tell me it's a true story. Because unless it's like a psycho killer, like it's Ed, the Ed Gein story or the Dahmer story, it's not a true story. Satan isn't real. Neither is magic. Everything is everything is fake until proven otherwise. Freaking stop it with your nonsense. Okay. And this one is the one I kind of feel bad saying the most. Because while it, you know, there's nothing inherently bad about the story... It's, it's reached the point where it's like, yes, we get it. We get it. Okay? And that is athletes overcoming adversity. All the way back to Rudy and Hoosiers, and especially when it involves black athletes overcoming racism. The Jesse Owens story, the J 
Jackie Robinson story, all, you know, the Muhammad Ali story and how he was fighting racism as a boxer who joined the Nation of Islam in the 60s. Yes, we get it. Okay? I, yes, athletes overcome adversity. Good for you. We get it. We've seen it a hundred thousand times. We get it. Unless you got something new to add to the table, we don't need to see it again. Ugh. I mean, that's, and that's the thing. That Of all the stuff in this movie, that's the one that's not inherently, that isn't inherently bad. It's good to want to tell the story of somebody triumphing over difficulties, either societal or, in some cases, like, overcoming physical disability of some kind. But, yes, we get it. Okay, yes, it's inspiring. Good for you! You want a cookie? Ah, I'm just done. I'm just done with that storyline. Give it a few decades. Give it ten years. Ten years. It's all I'm asking. And then we can come back to that storyline. Because uh, maybe not even ten. There's been so many in the last 20 years that we don't need anymore. We're good on inspirational stories of athletes overcoming adversity. We're good. We don't need any more copycats of Remember the Titans. Okay? Next one I came up with was something that I've been seeing a lot more lately. It's... And you've seen the, the first part, the poor, rich romance. You've seen that since probably time in memoriam. All kinds of stories happen of wealth, somebody with wealth meeting somebody who's working class and the two of them falling in love. That's a commonality. What I'm t but the one I'm talking about more recently is something you've seen, especially with Fifty Shades of Grey and Me Before You. And that is the idea of wealth porn. And what, a, what wealth porn is, is when you see this romance that is completely out of reach for like 50% of the people watching. You know, people who are in lower middle class to lower class that are just, they're, they're just watching how fantastic it is to be rich and to live in a, former on-site stable to a bloody castle. A bloody freaking castle. Ugh, me before you still pisses me off. But yeah, yeah, we get it. Having money is great. We don't need to see this, this like flying around in helicopters and living in fancy castles and going on a holiday. I don't care. I don't care. I'm probably never going to be able to get those kind of things. And I don't need you to show it to me. Isn't it great? Isn't it great that we could show off, do, go scuba diving in Aruba or wherever the hell they went on their freaking last ditch attempt to freaking. Ah, ah, ugh, that movie is bad. Anyway, where was I? Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey, too. Like, isn't it, like, here's the thing with wealth porn, no matter what the romance is, if the movie hinges on that other person being obscenely wealthy. It is a terrible love story. Good love stories transcend opulence. The reason Romeo and Juliet works is because they're the same class, and it's just people of 
feuding families, you know, star-crossed lovers, that whole thing. The Fallen Order Stars worked for me because they were kids from roughly the same class who were suffering from similar diseases. And the idea of sort of short-lived romance because they could die at any moment because of their health. And, yeah, I mean, if you're... If your love story hinges, absolutely hinges, on the one person with all the money showing off how great it is to be rich, you haven't written a love story. You've written a love... I mean, the only thing you're writing love to is money. Having lots of money, because having lots of money is good. Yeah, we get it. Money is great. Screw you and your money. I don't care. Write a better story. Anyway... After that is something everybody is familiar with, something you see mostly in fantasy, the chosen one. And the best counterpoint I've seen to that is probably Harry Potter, mainly because of fan theories, and the main fan theory being Neville Longbottom was also a chosen one. Or in some case, or some say he is the chosen one. Because that's the thing, when you have one person, one person, who the whole thing hinges on, that is stupid. That is utterly, utterly stupid. It is a stupid, archaic idea, and it needs to die. We don't need chosen ones. We don't need any more chosen ones, chosen ones. That was a Kung Pao reference for if you, for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, yeah, no more chosen ones. No more, oh, he was the chosen one by prophecy spoken of age. No, no, no more chosen ones. No more Jesus allegories. No more of this nonsense. We don't need chosen ones. We, well, we could have multiple chosen ones, but we don't need a singular chosen one. But yeah, the reason I bring up Harry Potter is Harry Potter is that sort of chosen one. But, whether by design or by accident, J.K. Rowling wrote the stories so that Neville Longbottom have, you know, has the same criteria as the Chosen One as Harry Potter. So there are multiple people who could be the Chosen One. And while Harry Potter is the protagonist and ultimately the one who defeats Voldemort in the story and fulfills the prophecy of the Chosen One, Neville is equally as important to that journey, to that story, to Harry Potter, as in, you know, sort of like the tail side to his head side of the coin. Harry Potter may be the head, but Neville is the tail. They're two sides of the same coin. Because, and I was thinking about this for this discussion, all, all the major steps of the way, as Harry fights against Voldemort, Neville is there. Like, Harry Potter saves Hogwarts from Voldemort and in uh, Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone, but Neville is the one who wins them the Gryffindor House Cup and proves that he deserves to be in Gryffindor instead of, like, Hufflepuff. You know, Neville is there to help Harry out when he is fighting in the Triwizard Tournament, and Neville is quick to join Dumbledore's army, and he is also the one continuing Dumbledore's army while the Death Eaters have taken over Hogwarts. And Neville is the one who kills Nagini and ultimately kills, you know, so Neville makes it so, Neville and Harry both make it so Voldemort can be destroyed by Harry killing himself 
well, not killing himself, but allowing himself to die to take away his Horcrux, and Neville killing the final Horcrux, which was Nagini. And Neville is equally as important to the story as a chosen one as Harry, ultimately. And that is brilliant. That is a way to tackle the chosen one. Have multiple chosen ones, people who all fit that criteria. And so it's like, yeah, chosen one prophecies are stupid. They can apply to just about anybody. And yeah, you know, make it, you know, flip that script on its head. Do something with it. We don't need any more generic, you are the chosen one. That was one of the problems with Seventh Son is that you are the seventh son of the seventh son. I'm still doing my Rooster Cogburn impression. I am Jeff Bridges. Uh, that was one of the problems with Seventh Son is that, yeah, it is one single person is... The, you are the protagonist of the movie. And it's up to you for the MacGuffin thing to happen and defeat the Dark One. Yeah, that's, that's stupid. That's terrible. And it's one of the problems with the prequels, too. No, no more chosen ones. We don't need chosen ones. Unless you can do something with that. Next up, computers are magic. This is something you see a lot in Hollywood, especially as new technology develops. And that is the idea that computers are literally magic and can do anything. God, this goes all the way back to freaking Tron, even. Where it's like, computers can do anything. They're like magic devices. Oh my god. But yeah, computers and the advancement of technology is crazy. But computers can't do everything. And quit saying like, computers, like, oh, I'm typing away on the computer. Look. Oh, I'm typing on my computer, my blobber, and doing the thingy. I'm doing the thing. I'm typing on my computer, my bobber, and I'm doing the techie thingy. I'm a, I'm a hacker device, my bobber. Like, Black Hat suffered from this, Transcendence, Lucy, all kinds of nonsense computer, techno babble, mumbo jumbo nonsense. No, computers aren't magic, and if you understood anything about computers, you would know that. Like, People who are in the tech industry and who, you know, who are like tech savvy know this one notoriously. And that is the NCIS scene where McGee is with Abby and they're two hands, they're both of their hands. There are four hands typing onto their keyboard. That is not how coding works. That is not how hacking works. You have no idea how to use the thingy, do you? Stop it with the thingies! You don't know how it works! You are a caveman to this thing! Anyway, computers aren't magic, so stop it. This one stems from my issues with Money Monster, which came out a couple of weeks ago. And that is, Wall Street is corrupt. Yeah, we get it. We saw that in the 80s with Michael freaking Douglas. You got anything new to add? If not, yes, we get it. Wall Street is corrupt. If that's going to be your main storyline, then scrap it because we get it. We get it. You're pointing out the obvious here. Thanks, but no thanks. Write a better movie. Right, just write a better movie. Uh, next one is something people don't really think about. And that is 
white people in Hawaii. And what made me think of that was I was trolling through my list of worst movies of previous years, seeing if something would turn up. And most of the stuff I have an issue with is writing bad storytelling. You know, it's not overdone stuff. It's stuff that's just just bad, just just uniquely terrible in some way. But ultimately, yeah, like Jupiter Ascending is a chosen one story that's garbage. This next one came from Aloha. And for those who don't remember Aloha, it's the one that Spike, not Spike Jones, um, another freaking, um, music video director. I forget what. He's the guy who did Jerry Maguire. And he did a love story based in Hawaii that centers entirely around white people. And the only person that is of any color in the storyline is a woman who is half, who is a quarter Chinese and a quarter native Hawaiian played by freaking whitey McWhite person, Emma Snow, <laughs> Emma Snow, Emma Stone. I said snow because she's white. You get it? That was a Freudian slip. Yeah, Emma Stone plays a woman who is supposedly of Chinese and Hawaiian descent. And they couldn't get Tia Carrera because why? Tia Carrera is like the go-to for anything Hawaii. Tia Carrera was in Lilo and Stitch, and she's, and God knows all kinds of stuff where she plays somebody based out of Hawaii. She's from Hawaii. She's of, I think, some kind of Asian island and native Hawaiian descent, I think. I forget. I looked this up at one point for the Aloha Review, looking up people who are of any kind of Asian or native Hawaiian descent that are, that, that could have gotten. And yeah, people know Tia Carrera. You could, it's like, oh, that chick from Wayne's World. Yeah, I like her. Why couldn't she have been the love interest? At least there would have been somebody, my God. And the, this is even an issue with Academy Award winner for Best Screenplay, The Descendants. As The Descendants is a great screenplay, but once again, it's a movie space in Hawaii, but it's about all white people. And people who are from Hawaii who are, you know, have more reason to be upset than I do are, are, have readily said that this is an issue. And, and yeah, it is an issue. So we need to stop it. Quit, quit doing that. There's an issue with... Um, they did a movie about this couple that survived a tsunami in Southeast Asia. I forget where exactly and what the movie was, but it was a, a family from Spain that they changed the names of the original family and made them white. And it, it, it's whitewashing. And it's, it's so that white, it's because white is apparently the default. And how about, F that noise, human is the default. Unless... You know, unless it has something to do with ethnic, why does white, why do white people have to be the protagonist? I've been, I just got through the Netflix season of Voltron and like the cast of characters on there ranges in like all kinds of color spectrum from dark to pale. You know, there's people of much darker skin. There's people of varying shades of of brown and white and all kinds of stuff. And it's like a widely diverse cast of, you know, on-screen characters. And I think it's, a, it, God, it looks so much like the people who did Avatar. And, it, God, I, I, I just like the idea that it wasn't all, it wasn't just all white people. Like, I think the voice cast was, which is also an issue. 
but at the same time, at least the on-screen characters aren't white. But that's a whole other issue. So yeah, more about white people in Hawaii? Hey, there were people there before us. How about we talk about them for a change? Instead of, instead of you know, howlies, as they call, as, as they were referred to, as we are referred to when we go over to Hawaii. <laughs> instead, of a, instead of a movie about a bunch of howlies coming over there, just acting like they own the place, how about we talk about the people who were there? Gee. What's nice is, um, you got Tia Carrera and I think other native Hawaiian actors for Lilo and Stitch, um, Devay Chase notwithstanding, but at, but this next one that they're doing about a Polynesian princess, Moana, I'm excited because they, they, instead of going like generic actress route, they went and found a teenage Polynesian girl. I think she was from Hawaii and she plays the princess and then Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is of Samoan descent, plays the plays the kind of magical sidekick character that she meets who is a demigod and yeah it's I'm excited about that I'm excited to see how that you know see that sort of you know see that play out on screen and that that just needs to be a thing that happens now more less white people are not the default anymore you know that, that those days are gone I welcome now the def- the new the new default of human, unless it's about a certain you know if it's about a certain ethnicity, make it about that. So if you're basing it in Hawaii, tell more stuff about actual Hawaiians, not just oh my dad came over here and came over here to, to live on the base. You know why would you tell a story about Okinawa and then have no Japanese people in it? You know that sort of nonsense. We need to that 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 just needs to stop. Anyway, next up, the Die Hard, you know, plot. That was a thing that happened after the success of Die Hard. And that is Die Hard on a boat is Speed 2. Die Hard on a bus. And Die Hard at the White House. Die Hard in the, all the things. And yeah, it's the Die Hard plot of put upon like Joe Cop is fighting against terrorists against all the odds. And yeah. That's it's a quick and easy action plot, but guess what? We can do better than that. You can do other action-y things. It doesn't have to be the Die Hard story again, especially since Die Hard itself has dragged that into the dirt and made it un- ungodly terrible now. So yeah, no more Die Hard stuff. Give Die Hard a break. Come up with some new action stuff. You can You can be creative. You can do better. After that is... I guess it's not a plot. It, it is a trope, though, and it's something that bugs me to no end. Old toys and old vintage stuff is creepy. You see it a lot in horror movies. Annabelle and uh, the boy did this with, like, Brahms Lullaby. It's the idea that anything that was, like, turn of the 19th century or, turn, you know, going into the 20th century, anything before the modern era is creepy and spooky and scary and oh look it's so weird looking oh my goodness i can't wait for the point where they do this with freaking bell bottoms because geez it's stupid it, it's something that it, it's 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 purely aesthetic it's like we couldn't come up with something that's actually scary so here's a spooky toy look at it it's all weird and archaic and vintage and spooky and guess what i don't care that just means that you didn't come up with something that's actually scary 
you were you didn't you didn't even try. You just gave up. And I don't care anymore. And I'm done. Continuing with the terrible horror movie tropes is to continue off of the shallows, stupid people in horror movies. If your plot hangs on your characters doing the dumbest things they could ever do to enable the killer or whatever it is to attack them, then guess what? It's a bad script. You wrote a bad script, Johnny, Joey, whatever. I need to go see Fox. I need to go see Fantastic Mr. Fox again. Again. I never saw it for the first time. I just know that reference. The bad song. That's bad songwriting. You wrote a bad song. And I didn't forget what the name was. But yeah, I love that. It's a bad story. It's a bad script. That's bad screenwriting. You wrote a bad script. So yeah, if, you're, if your horror hinges on the... Like, the one thing I'll give It Follows is... It steers away from that for the most part. Like, people do try to think about it logically and try to follow in that logical steps to try and escape from this horde. So people aren't being, like, the characters aren't being outright stupid the way they are in stuff like Scream and stuff like the old 80s slasher movies. People are acting normal, and it's the circumstances that are still scary because they're doing the, you know, they're not acting stupid. They're acting smart. That's when things are really scary is you're doing the logical thing to try and stop this thing, and it's still not working. That's when things are scary. When people are stupid, that just means you wrote a bad script. It's a bad screenplay. Last couple here. This one came from the my, my uh... Scene 21 and over, which was the narrative version of Project X, essentially. And that is a long and studied trope of the uptight person learns how to party. Like, the this uptight, especially like white-collar or nerdy character, either in high school or in adulthood, or adulthood in the, like, the corporate office world, depending on... Like, you saw it in Central Intelligence, but instead of learning... like. Like, so, like, it's it's not essentially how to party, but the uptight guy learns how to loosen up. And that, you got to do something with it. Like, with Central Intelligence, the story wasn't what sold the movie, it was the actors. So, if the actors work, then the story can be whatever. But a good story doesn't, you know, it. we get it. Corporate office life sucks, and... And you know, people should, you know, and it makes people unfun. But guess what? I don't care. And you would be more fun if the guy go, you know, experiences all this party stuff and learns to loosen up and realizes, oh, wow, I'm around terrible, terrible people. You people aren't my friends. I was happy. That would be something. Turn that on its head. Have the party people realize, wow, my life has no meaning. I'm not doing anything with it. You know, I'm all loosey goosey, go with the flow. And then I real, and then have them realize, wow, I should like get a job. I should have some money set aside. What happens if I die? You know, it's not just me in the world. It's not just about me. What if I'm a terrible person? That would be something. That's an idea for a story. Turn that nonsense on its head. This one comes from Independence Day. And it's not, and it's not a plot, but it's definitely a trope of sci-fi. 
No more insect aliens. And what I mean is, no more queens, no more hives, none of that sort of insectoid, entomologically thought up aliens. No more of that. You don't need aliens to be like hot. What if aliens were more like us? What if they were a def- you know a, a basic civilization? What if they they're they're flying? They learned how to travel through space. They've learned how to travel almost as fast as the speed of light, or learn how to look to shorten the distance between space in the universe, and they're like primitive insectoid aliens that doesn't make any sense like don't make them be animals make they've they've mastered interstellar travel these are at least make them at least like like there's a there's a throwaway character in futurama of a gas cloud as a date for leela and it's like an ethereal gas cloud that's evolved past a physical body and they reference that in um Independence Day Resurgence as a as an alien character, but more of that. You've mastered interstellar travel. Why are you still like pre- primitive alien speed? You know, you've mastered. You're smart enough to travel across the like that's like the stuff with predators was interesting. Uh, specifically, the one that um, I think not Guillermo del Toro, but somebody major produced it. And gave it to a, his buddy to direct. And it had Adrian Brody in it. And Topher Grace. And Lawrence Fishburne. And it was based on a reserve. Like a game reserve planet. Where the predator species hunts down their game. And that was interesting. The idea that these, these, these creatures are intelligent. They've traveled across time and space. So they can have like a primitive. They can have like a gen. A, a, like a spartan civilization where it's about the hunt and about you know warriors or could be you know they could be more athenian parts about the intellectuals and the thinkers you know have them be based on human civilizations not just for why aren't the aliens like jehovah's witnesses preaching the gospel of their alien overlord that that's they they don't have to be hive minds and insects that that makes them primitive you know, that, that makes them like it makes it sound like they have no idea how interstellar travel works. But so, yeah, I get it. Insects are weird and unhuman. They're, they're different. They're, they're like primitive compared to humans. And there's that makes them scary, spooky, scary. But no more. No more hive minds. No more queens. Just makes do something different. There are and there are all kinds of animal kingdoms and human civilizations to base your aliens off of. They don't all have to be hives and queens and bug-based. Make them based on something else. You know, make them based on, like, a pride of lions. Make them based on a herd of elephants. Make them based on a school of fish. Make them based on something, you know? Just, just do something different. And then the last one is Rampant rampant in young adult fiction the love triangle and it's especially rampant in young adult fiction because that is done in place of an actual story twilight hunger games that fifth wave did it and all kinds of young adult movies 
ha- just, they just cram in a love triangle. The idea that, oh, I love this person, but somebody else likes them too, or they like somebody else. Oh, dear. It's like preschool levels of, under- of understanding of romance. And I get that they're writing to people who don't understand the intricacies of romance and of relationships and of dating. But it doesn't mean you should dumb it down for them. Dumbing it down for them makes it sound like that's how it's supposed to be. Talk about it, you know? Make it, talk about issues like, oh, I like somebody, they don't like me back. I should learn how to deal with that and just and just move on. And, you know, things of that nature. Don't, like, I think 500 Days of Summer tackled this a bit. The idea of not everything, you know, romance is not, you know, sometimes relationships don't work out. And so, you know, it's not, it, there's nothing you can do about it. And yeah, love is nice, but hey, guess what? Sometimes things don't work. So yeah, I'm done with love triangles. No more. No more love triangles. You can do better. No more love triangles. Or if you're going to do it, do something with it. Don't, don't retell the same damn love triangle story over and over again. No more of that. Uh, this is a light discussion because I couldn't think of anything else that just like stood out to me and really bugged me about plots. And, and like, I would be going into more of the cliches and the individual tropes after a while. And I like, I covered some of here, like, um, like the, stu- like the toys and the idea, you know, like, the love triangle is more of a cliche and a trope than it is an actual plot point. But yeah, I'm done with those. I'm done with all of that. And that's not to say that they shouldn't be done. It's just to say you can do better. We've done this before. Try harder. You know, nice try. Try harder. Try harder next time. So yeah, that does it for this week. That means it's time for the plugs. If you are listening to Popcorn Junkie, you are probably listening to us on SoundCloud. The home of Popcorn Junkie is soundcloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie. You can find all of the episodes listed on that SoundCloud page and follow it for any new uploads. Or if you're not listening to us on SoundCloud, you are probably listening to it on iTunes. I am listed on the iTunes store. Just go to the podcast section of the iTunes store and look up Popcorn Junkie and you'll find my orange mug chomping down on some popcorn. All of the SoundCloud episodes are uploaded to iTunes at the same time. So if you want to keep up to date on the new episodes, all you have to do is follow Popcorn Junkie on SoundCloud.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you're on the iTunes store, make sure to leave a five-star rating and review to help more people find out about this podcast. If you really want to help out the podcast, you can also subscribe to us on Patreon. I am listed on Patreon at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. There are all kinds of tiers for people who want to support the podcast from $1 all the way up to whatever you're willing to pay. So if you want to help this podcast out financially, then you can subscribe to it on patreon.com. The first major goal of Patreon is to set up a secondary podcast wherein I go in and fix movies that I think can be improved. It's called Make a Better Movie. And if you want me to review movies like The Shallows, like Independence Day Resurgence, or the original Independence Day, find these movies that either are bad or just didn't quite work. Other movies I'm looking to cover are the Fantastic Four franchise, 
Age of Ultron, Batman v Superman. I've already done a look at how to make a better Superman movie and the third episode of the podcast, Making a Better Superman. So if you want a preview of what that podcast would be like, go to listen to the third episode discussion portion. And if you want to help make that podcast a reality, all you have to do is subscribe to the podcast on Patreon and leave a monthly donation of whatever you're willing to give this episode out. Or if you can't help out financially at this moment, you can always subscribe to, or you can always follow the social media for this podcast at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. There you'll find my previews and thoughts on movies as I'm leaving the theater, updates on new episodes and all kinds of stuff. Or if you want to follow the podcast on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod, then you can hear, you can read my thoughts on trailers going into a new screening. So, at this point, a lot of the trailers started to replay, so I've been seeing a lot of that uh, one with Brian Cranston about Pablo Escobar. I've been seeing stuff about Kubo and the Two Strings and kids movies, and there were some new horror movie stuff for The Shallows. But if you want to hear my thoughts on the new trailers, follow at CornJunkiePod on Twitter.com. And if there's anything else about the podcast you want to know, ask me any questions, leave me any feedback, send that in a message to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And I'll get back to you and maybe even read it on the show if you want. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and the movie plot is dead. Quit beating it. theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud for more of his music. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie provided by nafio.deviantart.com. Look up N-A-F-Y-O on DeviantArt for more of his artwork. Because can you stay still and recording? Can you stay still, dog? Are you done? Are you done? Are you done? Are you done? You wanna say something to the people? You wanna say something to the people? You wanna be on the podcast again? You were on the podcast last time because you licked all the time. Alright. Don't get in the pizza box either. Just sit. Dog. Staying home and alone with the dog. Anyway.